I was sitting the deacon, just nine o'clock mass, St. Eugene's, where I was going to be stationed. I just slipped in, Bishop Ordain me, and that was it. Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. I'm your co-host, Dennis. And I'm your other co-host, Robert. And we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beers. So why don't you pour yourself a pint, pull up a chair, and listen in for the next little while. As we take the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. And as always, if you want to take part in the conversation or have an idea for the podcast, leave us a comment or swing by our Facebook page and drop us a message. Dennis, buddy, how are you doing this afternoon, my friend? Good, good. Very excited. Started off a little somber this morning, as you know, Robert, but very excited about, extremely excited about our next guest that you've lined up for us. Probably looking forward to this guest in our three or four seasons, Robert. This is probably one of your top top picks, so to speak. Yeah, our guest today is very much even at your own instigation there, Dennis. You've been asking me for a while to to reach out to our guest. I know, but we throw throw these things out there, Robert, but we don't think we're actually going to land them all the time. But yeah, you've done a great job on this. Well, the the email I got back was, you know, I'll come and do this just because of Dennis. You know, it's kind (laughs) of in in despite of myself (laughs) here, right? But yeah, like you said there, Dennis, it's... A bit of a somber day on both of our calendars. Uh, somber but joy-filled, joy-filled as well, as well. Yep. It, you know, in, in a certain way. Uh, today is the anniversary. So the day that we're recording is the anniversary of the passing of both of our fathers. On the same right? day. On the same right. day. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's been two years now since your dad passed away. Two years, away, yep. And yours? And my dad, six years now. Six now. Wow. It's it's really hard to believe. Uh, it just seems like yesterday I could reach out and touch him. Right and yeah. and hear his voice. So and you were at mass today, and I was at the cemetery. So we were both praying for our respective fathers. Yep, and, and so important, so important to mm-hmm. to pray for our, our loved ones that passed. But like I said, it's also a joy filled day. It is joy filled yeah. um, because of the hope that we have, uh, the hope that they are eternally with our Lord. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and that's the the joy and the hope that we have in our faith. Also, and a special for the day. time. Thankful for the time that we got to spend with them, Robert. Right, oh, hundred yeah. percent. Such a such a blessing. But it's a special day as well, sir. Uh, I've been waiting since uh, we started our, our chat here a little while ago. I've been waiting for your prayers. I've been waiting for your salutation. Today is the feast day. Uh, Saint Robert de Molem. It's Saint I'm, Robert's feast day. I can't even believe I didn't send you any salutations. And usually, send not me even a, a card. Usually, send me a severed head on my feast day, and I haven't sent you anything. Well, there you go. But you I know. like your little beams you send me. Yes, yeah, but yeah. as far as this guest is concerned, I think we should call this episode part one, because we know that we're not even going to scratch the surface this afternoon. Correct? Oh, correct, correct. So but we uh, not mess up. And he'll come back on, maybe. In the well, summer. I think that's going to be it. We're so worked up and so nervous because of this, um, and also too kind of fortuitous. Uh, it's not just the feast day of Saint, Saint Robert; it's the feast day of Saints Timothy and Titus. And we didn't realize this when we were setting up mm-hmm. the date to record no. today. But Saint Timothy and Titus. So, in, in Saint Paul's second letter to Timothy, we have the apostolic succession, the laying on of hands from the apostles to their successors, the, the bishops. Careful, and you're giving it away. But. Giving it away. <laughs> and, and I don't want to give away too much because for our listeners here in the Archdiocese of Toronto, our, our guest really needs no introduction. None at all. Whatsoever. But since we are big in Rhode Island, 
Rhode Island. Maybe we should do a little, little bit of an introduction, introduction here. Right. Yep. So our guest was born in Guelph, Ontario. We won't get into dates or anything. Right. No. Uh, from there, he did study at St. Jerome's College at the University of Waterloo and went on to get his master's in English. And my wife was really stoked to hear about this because my wife was also an alumnus of the University of Western Ontario. Sure. So she was Excellent. excited to hear that our, our guest is also uh, an alumnus from, from there. Um, before going on to get his Bachelor's of Theology at St. Peter's Seminary in London, where he did eventually return to teach. Uh, and having received his doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University. Our guest was ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Hamilton on May 5th, 1973. It's right about the year that you entered into high school there, right, my friend? <laughs> Not quite, Robert. <laughs> but he, he's coming up then on 51 years of the priesthood. Uh, during his time at the Diocese of Hamilton, he was a high school chaplain and English teacher. So we could, mm -hmm. you know, as both of us as high school teachers, we can maybe swap some student stories later on. Yeah, we don't want to put the listeners to sleep, but go on. Consecrated Bishop of St. Paul, Alberta in 1997. Uh, he was then became the Archbishop of Edmonton in 1999 before becoming the Archbishop of Toronto in 2007 until his retirement last year in 2023. During his time as the Archbishop of Toronto, Argus was elevated to the Cardinalate to the College of Cardinals in 2012 by His Holiness Benedict XVI. And at the day of recording, he's just recently celebrated a birthday, Dennis. And if he has a couple more, he might eventually catch up to you, buddy. <laughs> eventually. Eventually. If our listeners haven't figured it out by now, our guest today is Archbishop Emeritus of Toronto, Thomas Cardinal Collins. Your Eminence, happy belated birthday. It's such an honor and blessing to welcome you to the Pines and Pews podcast. Well, thanks, Robert. It's great, it's great being here. It's uh, Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to take, take part in this. Uh, Good with all this technology, kind of do it from home, you know. It's a you don't in. have to come into the office. Uh, oh, you're very, very very to come nice. into the office. Very nice. Yeah, and like I said, it's probably better that we're all in our separate homes. I'm just, like I said, getting over a cold here, so we'll just keep that here in my basement. <laughs> yeah, and and we've we've met you a few times, uh, Your Eminence. You, we used to go down to the education mass, so you always celebrated celebrated oh, yeah. that every August. You came to our high school. I don't know if Robert had transferred to uh, Father Leo Austin, but just when you became an Archbishop of Toronto, maybe oh eight oh nine, you first came up to. Um, our school and you gave out your cell phone but anybody who was interested in vocations you said to give you a call so that was really nice and we've met you in your office before and um, I'm sure there's a couple of other times that we've uh, crossed paths definitely so in the last 15 or 16 years so it's great to finally have you on the show your eminence well great great to be here it's uh yeah now I'm retired uh I uh, we have a wonderful new bishop, Archbishop Leo, and uh, so I am uh, just living at. Back, I went back to. I was spent many years teaching in a seminary, mm -hmm. Peter's in London, and I've been very involved with all the, sem the seminaries in English Canada pretty well. At least with the with St. Peter's, with St. Augustine's, and with uh, uh, St. Joseph's in Edmonton. And now I'm back at uh, back to my seminary uh, origins, you might say. We have a wonderful uh, house here on uh, in St. George Street, uh, Sarah House. And uh, we have 15 seminarians uh, who are uh, really, really great guys. And uh, they're part, the whole thing is part of St. Augustine Seminary. Mm -hmm. This is my retirement home. And now I've turned 77. What a nice, neat number. Seven, seven. That's you know, great. Seven, perfect. seven. 
I studied the apocalypse, and I don't think I'm going to make it to 144,000 or even 56. <laughs> but 7-7 is kind of nice. It's gonna, that is nice. And lots more it to go. It does have a nice stuff. ring to it. And, you know, God willing, uh, Dennis and I will get there eventually one day, too. We, we always bug each other about, about our age. But uh, and talking about that reminds me one of my favorite uh, quotes from the book of Proverbs. I want to say it's Proverbs 16.31. You know, gray hair is a crown of wisdom that comes from a life of righteousness, right? Uh, well, there you go. At least your eminence and I, we have that hair that can be gray to be that crown of wisdom, Dennis. Cheating hair We're not lines, so sure yeah. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly creeping backwards. <laughs> yeah. But here on the Pints and Pews, uh, we always like to, to get to our drinks because... Our throats get a little dry if we chat for too long. Uh, so, Your Eminence, I uh, would like to to ask you, what are you drinking here with us today? Well, I am I'm drinking water actually. Adam's ale, as it's known as, I'm drinking water. I've never heard that expression before. I like it. And somebody calls Adam's ale the beer they had in the Garden uh, of Eden. And I once I, I've I've had a few interesting drinks of beer in my life. But I think probably three total. Uh, I when I was a little tiny kid. Uh, I my dad had a had a glass of beer. It looked so nice, kind of golden liquid. I thought, oh, daddy, daddy, I want some, I want some of that. I was just about five, six years. So uh, he took a little tiny spoon, a little teaspoon, he dipped it in the beer, gave it to me, and I drank it. Oh, kind of <laughs> bitter, bitter. Oh. So I've never had beer after that, except on one occasion. I was studying over in Germany in Bavaria, where the Bavarian beer, the best beer, and they were telling me. So I went to visit uh, some uh, the parishioners there. They invited me over, and of course, they put a huge stein of Bavarian beer in front of me. I think, oh my gosh, this I've never had beer before, really, apart from my little little tiny sip. So I drank it down as quickly as I could. Then they filled it up again. Uh-huh. I thought, well, this isn't going to work. So I slowly. Not rid of the rest, but those are the only. So that would be three: a little sip and two steins. That's my two beer. That's it. Oh. I thought of going into the beer house, you know, or the Hofbrauhaus, whatever, mm-hmm. Munich, and ordering, asking for a Coke. But I thought that would be uh, rude. That, that that would be the shortest way to the door. That would they would kick me out. You know? <laughs> yeah, kick you right out. Yeah, I, just, I loved my time down in Bavaria too. It's uh, spent a lot of time in the monasteries. When I was in Bavaria, but I don't think I quite made it to the church that often. A lot of beer made by the monasteries. That's one of their big things. You know, they they do that. Uh, they Some monasteries make, uh, well, monks bread. The monastery I go to whenever I can. I haven't for a while because of COVID, but it's in Genesee. They make bread, monks They bread. make the bread, yep. But the Germans make liquid bread. They make beer, so it's kind of, <laughs> it's the same. It's a liquid bread, isn't it? A little bit uh, different, yeah. It's kind of like having a sandwich. Yeah. And Dennis, <laughs> yourself, buddy, what are you drinking I today? Do. I've got, in honor of uh, the eminence, I have uh, Sleeman Cream Ale. Oh, all the way from yes. Guelph, Ontario. Yay! Yeah, so I thought I'd bring that oh, on the yeah. show today. And uh, I haven't had it in a while, but it's always a, a refreshing drop. So not too far from where... Your uh, his eminence grew up, I believe. My grandmother used to work for the Sleeman Brewery. Well, there you a, go. Excellent. A, I think she was a bookkeeper there. Uh, that would have been around 1910 or 20 or so, quite wow. a while ago. And then uh, I think I remember hearing in the family tradition, the Sleeman went kind of went under in the Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's not much left, just an old house where the Sleeman family used to live. Then I think their grandchildren brought it back as a small little craft brewery in the 
50s or 60s, maybe 70s. And now it's huge. I think some big company bought it. It's an enormous brewery. It's a massive now. And you're right. In the late 80s and 90s, it seemed to take off. There seemed to be a Sleeman in every, uh, well, I wouldn't say corner store, but in all the beer stores. I would not want it known in Guelph, Ontario, of course. But as I said, I've only had three. I don't know what that first little sip was, but I had two things of Bavarian beer. I have never had the Sleeman beer. I've never had the Sleeman no, I, beer. I, so I'll this, edit that part out, your eminence. This keep this under the seal of confession. This is serious. <laughs> We're gonna have to give Sleemans a call and set oh, you up with some beers, no, maybe once. you know, to try it. Never too late to try it, right? Your eminence? I remember once I talked about something about a, going to the shrine of St. Timothy, which is Tim Hortons. And <laughs> immediately I got bombarded with you know coupons for donuts and stuff like that. So I gotta be careful. <laughs> you gotta be That's careful what you say, especially in a more public way. So so I, we do that, Robert, on the show. We don't get bombarded with beer. Why Why doesn't it work the same? I was going to say, nobody's bought us a beer. I think we've had once, well, once we had a co-worker buy us a beer, and that's yeah. that's it. And we keep we're trying, for, though. We're waiting for that big sponsor. Maybe Sleeman's will be the big one today, Robert. But then you have oh, God, what really? today? So I was searching all over for a beer from the Brick Brewery, which is from Waterloo, again, in the, the, the area of Guelph. And I was mm-hmm. looking for this beer in particular, again, in honor of yourself, your eminence. Yes, uh-huh. uh, it's called Red Cap. Oh, it's, I like it's, that part, you know. <laughs> it seems that they don't brew the Red Cap anymore. But yeah. I did find a Red Cap beer. And perhaps Sleeman's been been bought out by InBev, which is a great Belgian monolithic Glomerate, brewery. Yeah. Uh, but I did find a Trappist beer out of Belgium. Oh, and it's I'm, the, the Chimay Red Cap. Oh, my. That, that sounds very good. You get holy, you drink that. Boy, yeah. and... I see yeah. that strong beer on the side there, Robert. You want to give yeah, it that? Seven percent, seven percent, and yeah. it's actually a pint and a half in that bottle. So I could, uh, oh. yeah. Are oh, you lucky it's a just, Friday? Just, just uh, exactly. Lucky it's Friday, and uh, just be merciful with me if the conversation starts to go sideways by the end here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we better say that prayer, Your Eminence. Okay, so we I can... have the prayer. Yep. Um, and. Uh, so I will say it in the name of the Father, Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Bless, O Lord, this creature beer, which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race. And grant through the invocation of thy holy name, that whoever shall drink it may gain health and body and peace and soul through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That is Thank great you. Very it great. is a beautiful prayer, isn't it? Thank you. Uh, mm. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers, Robert. Cheers, Your, your Eminence. Okay, cheers, yes. This is the part of the show where I unleash my Marcus Grodi, Your Eminence, and I ask you to take us back as far as you want about your faith story, your faith journey into the old days of Guelph, and just tell us how you got to where you're now sitting retired as Archbishop Emeritus of Toronto. Yeah, now I'm an old guy here sitting, drinking from a mug. I have my uh, keep calm and carry on. I'm keeping calmer and calmer now that I'm retired. <laughs> but I grew up in Guelph. I grew up, actually, uh, I can't <laughs> I can't show it here, but I grew up right behind the Church of Our Lady, that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful church on a hill in Guelph. And uh, I grew up in Durham Street. And in fact, for my 75th birthday, my my sister Kathy, who who lives still lives in Guelph, and I visit her quite often, 
uh, she uh, got me, she gave me as a gift, a painting of the Church of Our Lady from the back, which nobody ever looked. You always look at it from mm-hmm. the front, these beautiful towers that come up front. But the back is where we would have seen it as children coming up Durham Street towards the church. So I have that sitting in the hall just outside my little apartment here at Sarah House. So I grew up there. And my dad worked for the Guelph Daily Mercury. Uh, and my mother worked for a lawyer. She was a secretary of... Uh, of a lawyer, for a lawyer, a Mac, uh, the, Mr. Morris, Patrick Morris of McElderry Morris, became eventually McElderry Morris, Matthews, and Murphy. So I think you had to have an M to be a member of that law firm. <laughs> well, but it's kind of a thing that, you know, it was the chief requirement there, you know, have the letter, uh, kind of alliterative law firm. That sort of alliterates. But um, so I grew up there and I was very happy. I had a wonderful family. I have, uh, I grew up with my, my, my mom and dad. Uh, my sister Kathy and my sister Patricia. There was a, a, a brother I had, a, I never knew, George, who died before I was born. So I was born in 1947, but he had died before. So I, my two sisters and I grew up there. I'm the baby brother. Um, and uh, I went to school at St. Stanislaus School and St. Agnes, St. Stanislaus, then Bishop McDonald High School. Well, I guess it's properly Machtanel, it should be, but we used to call McDonald. And now, I mean, it was so small. Uh, it was originally the Loretto Abbey, Loretto uh, Academy on the hill, right, just beside the big church. Um, and then Notre Dame High School was built on the bottom of the hill, and then it became Bishop McDonald. Now it's a huge school out in the southern part of Guelph. Uh, and I've ever visited sometimes. They probably put the former school in the foyer of the new one. <laughs> uh, but... So I went, I went through school there. I, I always kind of, I did a lot of reading all my life. I, I read, read, read. Kids, my family would say that you'd see me walking along with stacks of books when I was a little tiny boy. I've always loved doing that. I had a happy time. You know, I loved growing up. My, my family was very, uh, it's very, very warm and loving. And, um, and then I went to school there. I had a, I loved a lot of, I, I just very kind of loved study. And uh, I had a really good, a lot of good teachers, but I had one really good teacher. Uh, it was uh, Father Newstead, Father John Newstead, who taught English. And to see him launch into uh, the tiger, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. Boy, he would really launch forth. So I got interested in English literature. And I was very interested. I was, as a teenager, I was sort of watching him as, you know, we're all, if you're a public person, you're, you're watched by people. And I was really intrigued, not only by his kind of exuberant teaching style, but by the fact that every day he would go up to the hospital to visit the sick. And it wasn't just that he did it one day or maybe there's some spectacular way. He did it every day. And I thought, gee, that was really, uh, that was impressive to do something faithfully all the time. So he, I really had a great, um, great admiration for him. And I, I didn't notice at the time what they were doing, but all the there were various pastors when the priests went through, and we had some wonderful pastors, Father Father Noonan and Father Ryan, wonderful pastors. I was just so impressed by the priests in the parish. And they always kept sending me down to ordinations and you know, chrism masses and things like that. I once went over to what they called a seminary seminar. We now call it come and see weekend over in Waterloo. And so I kind of sort of didn't think too much about it. But then I recall when I was uh, about grade 11 or 12, uh, Father Newstead said, came up to me one day after lunch. He said, you know, Tom, you should think about becoming a priest. So I thought about it. 
but I was uh, I completed high school and I went uh, my dad was quite ill for quite a while and I was kind of needed at home to help lift him in and out of the wheelchair and stuff like that and so I went over to uh, St. Jerome's College University of Waterloo and again I studied English but I also studied philosophy because I knew I wanted to be a priest and I knew I needed that but I wasn't able to go into the seminary yet because I needed I needed to stay at home. So I uh, did that, and then my father died in 1967. And uh, about a year later, uh, uh, you know, I finished, uh, and then I went to see my father, Father Ryan. At that time, my pastor and said, "I would like to become a priest. What do I do?" So he took me down to see Bishop Redding, who was the auxiliary bishop at the time down in Hamilton. And it was a wonderful, wonderful bishop. Uh, he died very young at the age of 58. I think I'm 77. He died at 58 of cancer. But he was just a great, great man. And I had a wonderful bishop, Bishop Ryan. I, he was an awesome, distant figure. You know, he, didn't, he was a... <laughs> Awe of him, but Bishop Bishop writing very well. Tom, how are you doing? You know, he's very kind of. He was a dear, wonderful man. So um, I I remember he was talking to me in this thing, and the phone kept ringing. So finally, he pulled out the plug and kept on talking. And we sent me down to St. Peter's Seminary in 1969 uh, in uh, in London, as most of our our seminarians for Hamilton would go uh, to either St. Peter's or. Uh, St. Augustine. So he sent me to St. Peter's in London, or St. Augustine's in Toronto. So I was there. Um, I had already completed the philosophy, and I already had an honors degree in English. And uh, so really, it's sort of shocked when I think of it. My time in the seminary was quite brief. And when I was there, I also did an MA in English over at Western. I thought, because of my English background, I asked them if they could, if I could have permission to do that, because I thought that would be kind of nice. Uh, and they said, okay, as long as you keep your marks up in theology, you can also do the English. So it was a kind of a balance. So I I, I did uh, Old English literature especially, which is very Christian, like the Dream of the Root and things like that. And I found I was very blessed to have combined uh, Old English and other literature. It was like it was an MA in English with the theology, though it was awfully overwhelming. It was quite a heavy thing. But it, it, I found it to be very beautiful. And then I was there from 69 to 70, and then 70, 71, 71, 72. So I had three years. I had three different spiritual directors in those three years, which is not a good wow. idea. You know, I, I wore them out. I mean, they were screaming from the building after the end of the year. You know, it was terrible to see what I did. Well, I think no, Dennis has had a few quit on him as well. But It was pretty rough. They, they would throw them in. I'd put them out. But, but actually, it was just that one got moved. This happens, you know. You think, what's the great plan for moving priests? Well, somebody got sick, so one well, guy got moved <laughs> up upstairs. Another guy wasn't ready to replace Another guy covered for a year and then another. So I had I had one for the final two years and one for the first, one for the second, the other for the third and the fourth years. But I was only in the seminary for three eight-month periods of formation before I made the final decision to become a like to become a deacon. That's when you make the final decision. Or my time it was you become a subdeacon, but they've eliminated that now. But it's basically become a deacon. 
And I made the commitment. And that's when you make the permanent commitment to uh, pray the divine office, the commitment to celibacy, the commitment to the priesthood. And in those days, when you made those commitments, that's when we have, you wear the Roman collar as a sign of your commitment. Mm-hmm. This isn't common. Some traditions wanted to become a seminarian to wear a Roman collar, but we, our tradition was that it's a sign that you made the commitment. And again, I say, well, for me, it was a few months a bit before being a deacon, I was uh, became a, a subdeacon, which they eliminated that. You know, they, they simplified the orders. So then I went out, I was ordained May 14th at 1972 at uh, St. Eugene's Parish in Hamilton, where I was to be stationed with Bishop Redding. He was the pastor there when he was a glory bishop. And uh, strangely enough, my sister Patsy just recognized, I hadn't forgotten about it. When I was ordained a bishop, it was May 14th, 1997. And it's just, I didn't think of it at the time the, the time was picked, but it was exactly on the 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Of being yeah. a so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's amazing so, how God works like that. Yeah, it's just very, very amazing. And so I had gone through so these three years of studying theology. We didn't have internship in those days, uh, where you spend a year in a parish. Um, I had done all my philosophy outside, so I didn't have a long-term um, sex time of uh, formation and like spiritual direction. This is one of the reasons why when I have we came in charge of a seminary, both in Edmonton and uh, in Toronto, I've lengthened the program, given more time to the guys, and I've I've used uh, because I think you know I was spent about seventeen or more years in St. Peter's Seminary and eight and a half at, at charge of St. Joseph's and sixteen in charge of St. Augustine's. So really I guess I'm the guy who's been most involved with seminary formation in Canada. And I've tried to make use of my my own experience to sort of lengthen it out longer than what I I mean I would have liked to have had more time, but it's just the way it is. The thing is you don't regret what happens. You know, the history is history. You let you let it go by and you I mean, I, I work it out. You cope and you do other things. But I, I did get ordained a priest. Uh, uh, but it's interesting. I was ordained a deacon, just 9 o'clock Mass, St. Eugene's, where I was going to be stationed. I just slipped in, Bishop ordained me, and that was it. There was no big celebration except my, my family, my uncle, my aunt and uncle, and my, my family, we went. Uh, by that time, my uh, my dad had died. But my mom and my two sisters, we went to a little hotel room and we had a cake. And then I hurried <laughs> off to be at help at the ordination of uh, a good friend of my father, Bob Dunn. Uh, and so, but nowadays, a deacon ordination is much more formal. It's more like a priesthood one was in those days. And then after I was, I went back to St. Peter's. And this is the first time I had never st- spent an overnight in a rectory. Uh, before I was permanently ordained to the priesthood or to deacon, to be a deacon, like I made my permanent commitment, which is kind of amazing. Now guys have much more experience in what a parish is like. But then I did make have experience because I traveled every weekend. I would go from, I was stationed back at St. Eugene's, the far end of Hamilton, out towards Stony Creek. So every Friday afternoon, I would get on the bus at St. Peter's Seminary in London, go down to the train, take the train to Dundas, take the bus to downtown uh, Hamilton, take the trolley out to St. Eugene to get off. And I'd reverse that when I <laughs> when I went wow. back Sunday afternoon. So I spent a whole year back and forth. But it was good. It was I had my own little room at the rectory, and I was in the weekend in the parish. 
So now as you're, as you're spending this time, your eminence, are you thinking, you know, parish priest? Are you thinking maybe high school teacher, professor, further studies? What's going through your mind as you're leading up to your ordination here? Did you have any preference? No, no, I hadn't really thought of anything much okay. in particular. Maybe I was so consciously thinking of academic things by doing the MA while I was also doing the mm-hmm. theology, but I hadn't really thought. I really, I think this is the big thing about the priesthood it's, uh, and about I don't religious life too. I don't know about a religious life, but about the priesthood, you, you, you go where you're sent, you know. And I, I didn't plan anything really. Um, well, I just, I had thought maybe of becoming a Jesuit or something because a lot of Jesuits can go well. But then I thought, you know, because there you would have a kind, you kind of know more what you'd be doing. Mostly you'd be doing kind of academic stuff or that kind of thing. But then I thought, well, I don't know whether I want to do that. Uh, maybe not. I wanted to be a, a kind of a diocesan priest. Uh-huh. Mainly because I wanted to be connected to a bishop. Uh, that was it. I I didn't want to elect my superior. I didn't want to have him a priest. I wanted to have to be basically ordained by my superior. I wanted him to be my spiritual father. Uh, sacrament. I wanted to have a sacramental relationship. So I wanted to you say, get your holy orders, you know. I wanted to get my orders from the person who gave me my orders. And I wanted to have a, a permanent, like a deep relationship as father and son with with the one who was my boss. Not as simply my superior, but my father and God. And I certainly have had that with my bishops. With Bishop Redding, my dear, dear Bishop Redding, who died so young. And uh, Bishop Tonus. Uh, we had... We've had in Hamilton Diocese, I mean, I don't know others, you know, I'm just, the the three great bishops, Bishop Ryan, who saved Catholic education, he was a great Catholic education bishop, and um, Bishop Ryan, very, but I didn't know him well, because he was just sort of distant, and Bishop Redding, who was a wonderful bishop, and Bishop Tone, this extraordinary, wonderful bishop. So I always had a picture of them wherever I was, whether studying in Rome or in London, in other dioceses where I was sent. I always had a picture of my bishop on my desk. And that's very important. In fact, so much so that as a kind of a custom, it doesn't really matter, you know, but I, I, as a bishop, have rarely ordained a religious. You know, the first priest I ever ordained as a bishop I don't remember his. I should say I don't remember his name. You might be listening to this, but I, <laughs> oh dear, it was it was, it was the diocese I was in. I only met him for. I haven't seen him in about twenty five years because uh, I saw him for a few minutes before the ordination. I ordained him. He's truly a priest, and then I didn't see him after that. <laughs> so I mean, he's it's certainly he's a priest, absolutely, and anyone who's ordained. So nowadays, what I usually do is. If uh, religious are being ordained, what I would do when I was Archbishop of Toronto or of Edmonton, I would ask, uh, well, I have auxiliaries here. I didn't there. Um, you know, have the one of the auxiliaries do it because the guy will be ordained a priest. There's no doubt. But I always think that special thing is uh, is very, uh, very important. It's in my own life it was. And that's one of the reasons I became a diocesan priest. Not a, not necessarily a parish priest, because most diocesan priests are parish priests, but some other people are parish priests, too. The key thing is the diocese to be related to the bishop, and then you go where you're sent. So I went back after that in that year of 72-73, when I was down in London traveling every weekend to uh, the parish 
in uh, in in Hamilton to be with Bishop Bishop Redding, who was the pastor there. Then uh, in March of two thousand in nineteen seventy three, I was well, right? Should have May, and the bishop resigned. Uh, that was the first time bishops could retire. Uh, and so Bishop Ryan, who had been bishop since 1937, I de- retired in March of 1973. Now, that's a long time. That's a long career, yeah. I, I knew enough about it, kind of a lot of you can't ordain somebody if there's no bishop. So I thought, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? But he was a very it's a responsible kind of lawyer. So he signed my ordination, my call to the priesthood before he resigned. <laughs> I've done things like that too myself when I was approaching. Thanks be to God. You know, so I was, I'm the last person called to the priesthood by Bishop Joseph Ryan. But when, so when uh, I finished, I went. I was my I was set to be ordained in May 5th, 1973. So Bishop Redding was the auxiliary and he was filling in, but he was not the what we call the co-juder bishop, the one who was automatically going to become the new bishop. He didn't know at the time I was ordained. I think he, I'm pretty sure he didn't know he was going to be the new bishop, but he did become the new bishop. But when I was my last year, uh when I was we we had this nice custom at St. Peter, maybe they still do. Uh, after the evening meal, we'd all go up to the chapel and sort of file in, and then we would say a beautiful prayer. You will, I will give them shepherds according to your own heart, and they will feed you with knowledge and doctrine, which is a quotation from Jeremiah. And then we pray that all priests will be found faithful in fulfilling the office committed to them. So after we had, and then we sing a hymn to Mary, which is very beautiful. So after that, uh, the rector beckoned to me and said, come, come into my office. So I said, oh, my gosh, you know, you're called to the principal's office. This is not <laughs> never a good sign. Never a good not sign. Not a good sign. So I, I followed him in and I sat down. He said, now, Tom, your uh, bishop has agreed that you can teach here. Uh, is that all right with you? And I said, well, certainly, whatever. Fine. What am I going to teach? Scripture. Oh, okay, fine. Oh, well, good. So then I got up and walked out the door. And I turned, went into the chapel, and I sat down. I thought, oh, my gosh, what has just happened? So that that those twenty seconds sort of changed my life, you know. But and people would ask me later, why did you decide among the many things you could study to study scripture rather than liturgy or something else? I didn't really. The fact that I studied anything was because I was that's what the church asked me to do, and what they needed then was scripture. If it had been another year, it would have been canon law or liturgy or something. So when I've asked people to study. I have sometimes say, well, there are two options, or we need both of these. Do you have a particular preference? But usually, I just say, by the way, here we go. <laughs> you know, so, and so they, but they wanted me to have a couple of years before, and that's very wise. That's what I always done when sending priests into Toronto. You really need to send a priest a year away for studies, so that you get them back later. You know, that takes six years, some five to six years. Um, it's it, depending on what you're studying. And so you you need to, and if you're running a seminary like St. Augustine's, you really, you can't, you can't quickly produce a, a person. So it takes time. You're, you know, planting the seeds. It takes time. You got to let them grow. So anyway, I they wanted me to, but you want to have a couple of years in a parish. So the so the priest has is rooted in the diocese and is rooted in uh, pastoral life. 
so that when he's a scholar, he will know what he's know what the he'll be grounded. So I spent two years, uh, and Bishop Redding said that he wanted me to teach at Cathedral Boys High School. So I said, "Where's that?" And he was shocked, 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 shocked. shocked. He had gone to Cathedral Boys. How could I, a young priest, not know? where Cathedral Boys High School was. He was shocked, shocked, and he was laughing anyway. And so I went down to see Father Kramer, the principal. And so for two years, he was a nice man. I, I taught uh, I taught religion, and I taught uh, history, and things like that. But I didn't teach, and I didn't actually teach English. I was at, I had an MA in English. <laughs> didn't I didn't teach, teach English, of course. So of course, I wouldn't teach English. That, that's the way it usually works in teaching. You teach everything but what you studied at university. <laughs> so and, and cathedral, you're in you're in Hamilton now at Cathedral High School, yeah, right? Yeah, Cathedral yeah. High School. And I got a little. I was, but the bishop wisely had me stationed at the cathedral. Cathedral, like a bit, the the high school is across the St. Patrick's Church, some distance away. Mm-hmm. There was a high school beside the cathedral, which was now the pastoral center there. But so he would put the the chaplain who was at that school was. He didn't have the chaplain living right beside the school, so I had to travel every day down, and I got a little little blue. Volkswagen bug, and once the guys very nicely put it up on the roof of a little building, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had a great, I had a great time there. Well, it was, uh, you know, I, I knew, however, in the back of my head, I was going to be two years. I knew there was a certain limit to it, but a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience with the guys who my students there, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I really, uh, I still in touch with some of them sometimes. Well, like I. Uh-huh. Father Bob Hetu, one of my students, who is a priest of Robert Hetu, who is a priest okay. of uh, Hamilton, and um, and various other students. Although it's interesting, if I want to, what impact did I make on their faith life? Well, I remember years later when I had become Archbishop of Toronto, I was at a reception in the Royal York. And it was, I forget what it was. These things you have, you know, you go to. I'm an introvert, but you have to go to these extrovert events. <laughs> this guy comes up to me. Ah, Father Collins, Father Collins, good to see you. You taught me in uh, Cathedral uh, in Hamilton many years ago. And I said, oh, hi, good to see you. I didn't know who he was, but he <laughs> what are you doing these days? I said, oh, I'm stationed in Toronto. I'm, I'm here. Oh, good. Thanks, Father. Good to see you. And off he went. That's so cool. <laughs> So he was <laughs> no idea, no idea no, that he'd become yeah, Archbishop. Right? That's so funny. Oh. He had no idea. I love the blunt honesty. This kind of punctures any pretense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Don't see humility there, your eminence. It was uh, that was great. Anyway, so I, but I uh, yeah, I was I taught there, and then I uh, I had that I needed to get, get going, and so I did. I had. I was going to be studying at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, the Biblicum, which is a very difficult school. And, oh gosh, it I didn't. Like, I had French up to first year university. I had Latin up to grade 13. I had a smattering of Italian, but not much. Just I took a course once, so I didn't really know it. And that was it. And I had no conversational French or anything like that. So, and I had no Greek and no Hebrew or anything. So there we are. So I, I spent the first summer at uh, the Harvard Divinity School because uh, they had a very good class, cram course in Greek. 
So I studied my first Greek uh, this summer, and I stayed at a Jesuit residence there near, right down the street from the Harvard Divinity School. And it was very good teaching, very, very good, very expensive, too. For the I think we paid <laughs> for that summer at Harvard than I did for the whole first year of the Biblicum. Well, for one thing, because the teachers of the Biblicum are great scholars, but they teach for free, you know, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and I would celebrate Mass. The Jesuits had a, well, they had a sort of a laid-back style. <laughs> they they weren't into vestments and things of that nature. So I've, I'm a little bit more... Things haven't changed much I'm in the years. Or, um, shall we say, a little bit more traditional. So I noticed when I was at my first mass, there, I, I put an album on a stool, and I was kind of overdressed. <laughs> I, I see these guys with kind of colored shirts. They stick their hands out of the consecration. Oh my gosh, they're priests! So, <laughs> and I, I said, I think I'll come in. Um, I said, you know, um, I wonder if there's a little. I spent a little time before the Blessed Sacrament before Mass. Is there a tabernacle around here somewhere? And this was sort of a chapel in the basement of the, of the school of the one of these houses. Jesuits to this day, if I right behind here, they have three houses. They they live in. They, they like to have their institutions in houses. So uh, this house had a chapel, and there I said, I said, it's right over there. I looked, I looked, I couldn't see where, and there was a plate hanging by wire from the ceiling and a, a red plastic box on it. Oh, silly me. I didn't realize that was the tabernacle. Anyway, so then I, I found out that there was an Armenian Catholic parish where the pastor had to be away at a summer camp. And uh, so he they needed a priest to say Mass, weekday Masses. So it was right through Harvard Yard down some back streets. So <laughs> I would walk over every morning and I would go to this little tiny church hidden away in a little back street. And uh, I would go into the little tiny sacristy and put on these most stunning vestments. Talk about the opposite experience, you know, silver, you know, silk and cuffs and bells. And things. <laughs> You're way down. <laughs> I feel like I was, I look like the infant of Prague. <laughs> sort of like that. It was very beautiful, very beautiful. Now, fortunately, I wasn't expected to read Armenian, so they had a regular thing. And the people there were salt of the earth, the people who make the place run. You know, they were there, and they were good solid Catholics. So we, I celebrate Mass every every day. Uh, and then after that, I went to Rome, to the Biblicum. And my first year, the Propodutica, I did it in three years. I probably should have taken four, but it was, I kind of, I just kind of why I compacted it. But anyway, the first year, they, they this crash course in languages. So I already had a bit of Greek. Uh, then they teach you Greek and Hebrew. And I had a fabulous course in Greek taught by a Spanish Jesuit in Italian using an English textbook uh, with a heavy Spanish accent. He was such a good teacher. It was just really good, really well done. Yeah. Then I had a, we had a class in uh, um, history and geography and then Hebrew, but very the wonderful, wonderful priest taught it. But he was quite dry in the way he taught it. it was very you you learn the grammar from the book, you know. So after that, I stayed at the Canadian College, which is not a college like we would think of as like a school. It's more a residence. So I uh, stayed there. There's about I don't know, I guess about twenty of us there. <clears throat> about half were French Canadian, half English Canadian. Mm. So that's where I began to have the chance to speak French. Mm. And so the, at every table, there'd be someone who didn't speak English to someone who didn't speak French. So we tried to we picked it up by practice. Well, that's a, you know that's the best way to learn. 
Oh yeah, no, that's exactly when you're yeah. thrown into the situation where you have to speak the language, where you have to make that effort. That's yeah. exactly the the place to learn another language. Dennis, uh, thinking of French, Dennis, how many days on your Duolingo there, pal? <laughs> We're about eight hundred plus on Duolingo. But I just want to ask you and and you as well, Robert, yourself, your eminence. So, would you be uh, a polyglot now? Both. So oh. trilingual three, but polyglot four or more oh, languages. I, would you? I don't know. Like I. I did different levels, you know, like I, you I got also, French, Italian and English. Obviously. Well, the Italian had to be, I now nowadays, boy, when we send guys away, we don't fool around. They go <laughs> in the summer, they go to Siena or Florence and they spend three or three, two or three, four months there learning Italian. Well, okay. they really know it well before October when they start the classes. <laughs> I didn't do that. I had to sink or swim. But we went to a, we went to I went to this little class night class for a few weeks or maybe two months. I don't know how long it was. <coughs> taught at the French Embassy of the Holy See. The professoress of this lady she taught. It was very good, but it was quite minimal. And uh, uh, I just remember I had to say talk about. I had to write something in Italian. I didn't quite understand a couple of words. I wanted to say the people went up the, the holy steps on their knees. I said on their. Uh, gnocchi, which means they're dumplings, you know, and I kind of meant their knees are ginocchi. So I wasn't quite good at that. So I just had to pick it, learn it as I went. So <laughs> my Italian, I can do Italian. I can say mass in Italian, but I don't have a trained knowledge of it. I have a mm. pretty good reading knowledge of it. I'm getting better and better because in my life and my work, I have to read a lot of texts in Italian. And when mm. I go to meetings in Rome as a cardinal, I'd be speaking Italian. But I must admit, a rather uh, learned—I uh, won't say who it was—European cardinal said to me, "Now, Tom, you can speak in English. We all understand it." <laughs> well, thanks. So I no. get there, there, I there, there, there's no greater insult yeah. than trying to speak another language, and you know, someone says, "That's yeah, you, okay. We can speak English." But it's interesting, though, because <laughs> I thought I was listening to his Italian. I didn't think he was all that good either. Yeah. That's my opinion, but. There was another guy who heard that comment, who was an Italian, an Italian priest who worked for the, the group I was with. And he said in Italian, um, I can't remember, I probably ruined it. He said, oh, no, don't worry, Eminence, don't worry. Um, from other Italians, we expect poetry. From foreigners, clarity is enough. And you're clear enough. Don't worry. Hmm, excellent. So, uh, and what about the Latin, Greek, and uh, Hebrew? Well, the Latin, still got uh, oh, yeah, well, well, we had, the, like, uh, so I really learned Greek. I read Greek every day. You know, I read, hmm. the, I read the, the, the gospel. and I read the scriptures in Greek all the time. So uh, when I prepare for a homily, I always read it in, you know, like, most wow. of the gospel in Greek. And I... And I like commentaries and stuff. So I am probably, that's a very good Hebrew. We Then we took Hebrew. And I, the next summer, I went to the Hebrew University. And they did a very good immersion course in, in classical Hebrew. We had, we didn't look at a grammar book at first. You just, all you had to do was read the letters. <laughs> so we read the letters. We didn't know the Hebrew words. You know, it's very simple. Half the vowels are, you know, the things are missing. But, you know, just kidding. <laughs> But so we would read it and read it aloud, read it again, read it aloud. That's the best way to do it. We would learn a language. Like when I was studying Old English, I would go down through Beowulf and every line I put a word, like every word. And that's not the way. I got my, still my copy of Kleber's uh, Beowulf. And 
for a couple of pages, I gave up eventually. Every word, you know, what, why God then and yada that go and every you know Taiyud getting eleven You get every word. That's gonna sink you. What you gotta do is read it quickly, read it wide. Go like you're going across the thin ice. You know, you spread out and go fast. So that's how they did the Hebrew. And then we had we had Chaim Rabin was the professor who did the first unit. Then we had a um, we had an American uh, American professor of Hebrew, uh, another Jewish guy, and he had a little keep a little uh, skull cap, and he would as he bounced along with the board, putting all the vowels in, would boom, 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 bouncing up and down. He was very good, very good teacher. And then we had a Japanese Baptist Hebrew teacher who did another another more more of the grammar and another piece of text, and uh, so it was very good having Hebrew and it with a Japanese accent. It was very good. They were all good professors. They really knew what they're doing. And I lived uh, at the Ratisbon Monastery, which didn't look like a monastery because it was done in the Ottoman times when the Ia has now and always the church was being persecuted. So we would celebrate mass in Hebrew. And uh, <coughs> Father Stiasny had done the translation of proof of the Holy See. So that was, uh, that's what we did. Uh, so I was, uh, so I, that was some more Hebrew that summer. Then I did more Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic uh, in the Biblicum. Uh, taught in, taught in Italian largely, mostly Italian. Um, although I had a course with Father, uh, Father Martini, later became Archbishop of Milan. Mm -hmm. Uh, in about but text was taught in Latin, um, and he was a typical kind of a learned Jesuit. He said at the beginning, I think he said in Italian. Now I will teach in Latin. I believe it is good to keep the tradition, but you do not have to ask me questions in Latin. Ask in whatever your language, and I'll answer in your language. Hmm. So he would answer in you know Italian, French, German, Spanish, English, you name it. He would answer the questions in their language. But he taught in, that's the only course I've ever had taught in Latin, which seemed by that point to be like a form of Italian, really. Uh, and so I did that. Then the next summer I went to Germany. That's where I had my beer experience. Your beer, yeah. And, Two steins. Uh, and I went to the Goethe Institute and tried to learn a bit of German. Then I came back. And by this time, I was reeling. But trying to pack the biblical into three years was not a very good thing. Why I was, you know. And so, so too much of a good thing all at once. Well, it just wow. I was overloading with academic stuff when you learn, you know, Greek, Hebrew, and others. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, my head was going to uh, the walls were moving back and forth, <laughs> the blood pumping, and oh my god. Mm. So I um, I took some radical uh, things that I read Mark Twain to get me laughing. I went for long walks. Those are two solutions. And then at Christmas, uh, after Christmas, is a break in early January, so I flew home. And I had a nice chance to visit my mother and my sisters. And I, I dropped in. Bishop Redding didn't know I was home. <laughs> so he thought it was a surprise. <laughs> yeah, so I knocked on the door. And, you know, when I he drove me to my ordination, he said, now, Tom, now, Tom, we want you for a long time. Do not overstudy. I think he thought me doing the MA thing. <laughs> I was going to overstudy. I said, oh, yes, right. <laughs> Yes, Your Excellency. And so he looked up from his desk and sees me standing there. He thought, hey, I think he's told me wrong. Maybe he'd smile. Oh, come on, sit down, Tom. How are you doing? Tell me all about it. And he said, you know, I think you need a little break. Why don't you so help out a little parish for a while? So I did that. And he didn't say, I told you so. <laughs> he was very gracious. And then, but I had a chance to visit with my mother. And she died. Uh, she was quite ill. And uh, 
she, I had to come back at the end of that term in June because she, she died and then I got back before she died and I was able to anoint her and to be with her. But I, if it had not been for having to get a break, uh, so I didn't kind of blow up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was really getting, having a mental overload. Um, I wouldn't have providential. It was providential. I wouldn't have had that chance to be with my mother for a few weeks. Uh, and then I went back and uh, finished off the courses. Things went very well. Then I went and taught at the seminary. But I, it's interesting. Things that are kind of a crisis turn out to be providential and uh, a grace, you know. Well, firm believer in that. From every time yeah. I look back at crises that I've come through and realize that it was our Lord leading me to something bigger and better in his plan for the kingdom. That's so true, you know, it's so true. Things you think of, uh, like in our own little plans, you know, and I, I'm kind of a highly organized kind of guy. I think I planned this. I told the bishop, I told Bishop Brady, I said, I'm going to do this and this and this. None of it happened. None of it happened. <laughs> My plans didn't work out, you know. It, it was just totally, totally uh, illusion. You know, it's an illusion. Yeah, you want to make the Lord laugh, you tell him what you have planned. That's exactly it, you know. And it, other things happen, you know. You, you never know. And that was just good. It was good, you know. It's very good. So you know, I was uh, so I got back and then I taught and for several years. And then at the seminary, you taught back at the seminary, seminary for a yeah. number of years, and, and then I you was were a, called. I was a spiritual director, right? And I taught English literature for the first okay. two years because I had an MA in English. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a way on the outer Pluto-like uh, frontier of the English department at Western. There was the class I taught at St. Peter's Seminary. It was 8 o'clock, I think. So some people, not only seminarians, but some of the other students needed it to fit in their schedule. So I taught English 20. I did basic, uh, you know, introductory English literature class for University of Western Ontario. Mm-hmm. King's College through that. Yep, King's. Yep, but I yep. did it for two years, and then I was making too much. I had too many other things to do. My basic thing I was teaching was scripture. Uh, we had the seminary broken up into small groups, which is a very, very good idea, which I've tried to kind of, sort of what we have here at uh, at Sarah House. And uh, <coughs> this group that here, we have a group of 15 wonderful seminarians. Mm-hmm. And it's a good uh, good number to have in a unit, you know. Uh, they, every morning, they have mass of seven. Um, and then adoration for half an hour, 7.30 to 8, then breakfast. And then they have, uh, they're the university-level seminarians. And then evening prayer and a holy hour on Wednesdays. And then they have a whole program of prayer and study and fellowship. And it's just great. So I, I did that. And then they told me to go and do a doctorate. So I, I did. And I thought, what to do? Because I knew some of the stuff in Rome. I also knew I didn't want to overstretch myself the way I had before. So I phoned this guy, Father Dalton, about... Australian teacher, we're doing First Peter uh, uh, at the at the Biblicum or the Greg. <clears throat> They're across the street from one another. The Biblicum is a graduate studies school of, of Bible, literary scripture. And but he wasn't available. He's going to be away. So then I called my other one. I thought we're coming up to the year two thousand. This is nineteen eighty four, and I thought you know it'd be good to know about the apocalypse. So I called Father Hugo Vani, and uh, I called him from London, and I, I got, got a connection. He said, oh, yes, come and see me this afternoon. 
I said, well, I'm actually in Canada right now. He said, oh, very well, come later. So <laughs> I went over in May. I, I went to Rome. I stayed, I uh, forget where, and I, well, I guess Canadian college. And then I uh, I went to see Father Vani, and he set it up. He said, oh, just go over to the office and uh, register for the doctorate. So I went over the office and I said, uh, Io sono Thomas Collins, volio registrare per il dottorato. Somehow didn't knew I was an Italian. And I don't it, know where the first clue on that was, but so, uh, <laughs> and, well, one word I did understand was is impossibile, impossibile. And I thought, oh, okay, what do I do now? Here I come all the way over. <laughs> and I said, but Father Vanny asked me to see you. Oh, Father Vanny. So then he registered me. Oh, I <laughs> So connection, no problem. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing the way things work sometimes yeah, with the, the machinations of who you know and <laughs> you know the, the magic of a pencil and an eraser and all of a sudden oh, yeah. possibile becomes possibile, right? <laughs> that was great, you know. And I went back. He was a wonderful man, a wonderful holy Jesuit. You know, just a great guy. Very, he knew literature and scripture, and he was very good. Uh, and so I, we, I worked out with him what the thesis would be about. I said, how about the moral theology of the apocalypse? You're too big, too big, too big. <laughs> I thought it doesn't sound too big to me. But I said, okay, well, he knows what he's talking about. And I, he said, how about the moral theology in the last 16 verses of the apocalypse? I thought, ooh, too small, too small. Mm-hmm. He was right, of course. Of course he was right. And uh, <laughs> so I did <coughs> my uh, doctorate on... Uh, Apocalypse 22, verses 6 to 21, as the focal point of moral teaching and exhortation in the Apocalypse. That final, he was very big on structure. And that final section, like the beginning section, is sort of like a liturgical dialogue, like we have the Lord be with you and with your spirit, and so back and forth between the uh, liturgist or the celebrant and the congregation, you might say. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so both structurally, that's what it is. And what happens according to what I said in my doctorate, is that uh, all of the seven uh, Beatitudes of the Apocalypse, they give blessings on various things. The last ones are in that section. They're her viceless and uh, what not to do, what to do, what not to do. The last is in that section. You have all kinds of things about the moral behavior, the implications of the Apocalypse, and they all come together in that section. So like all the threads are pulled together in that final section, as you would expect. And then they go on to the liturgy of the Eucharist. Because this was, you can read the Apocalypse in not too long a time. Well, you even slip in hymns, which they would have done in the house churches of uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, and so forth. So <clears throat> that's what I, was my thesis. And uh, it's amazing when you start you know, give me a place where I understand that I can move the world, you know, and uh, that's uh, Archimedes said about, uh, you know, about uh, fulcrums. It's very true. So by really going deeply into one passage, it, the whole of the Apocalypse, the whole of the Bible opens up, and it's it's a lens through which to see everything, and that's a very good point. Start with somewhere. Don't just do gen- generally everything. Start somewhere, and you can find everything. But start everywhere and you can find nothing so that was and the other thing you have to be original you know for doctrine and uh, so <clears throat> somebody said if it's good it's original so i thought well that's a good point so uh this theme this thing was it was a it was a wonderful wonderful experience uh and this time i took a lot of walks i had a rhythm uh 
I couldn't. Some people can turn out stuff like it. They say a simple thing. You have 300 pages to write, turn out 10 a day for somebody. I, I would do it more in bursts. I would do study, reflection, prayer, walk up and down, pray to St. John and the Apocalypse. And then I would write it in a burst of about a week, a chapter. And I'd step back and go and take a break, walk somewhere, go whatever, visit Rome and all that. Then come back and edit it and then give it into Father Vanny and then take another break. And then he would come back and give me corrections on the chapter. And then I would start with the next chapter and so on. So I did it in pulses. And I got it done in two years. And uh, um, once you have the life center of the biblical, it's the equivalent of a doctor. All you need is the, uh, you just need the, uh, the thesis, the dissertation. So I, uh, I did that. And uh, it was very fruitful. Very fruitful. I found the apocalypse to be, it's not this end of the world thing. A lot of people say they manipulate it. It's very rich and it, it's tied into the whole of scripture. It gives a sense of vision of the glory of God, which puts all of our struggles within a uh, context. That's why one of my favorite hymns, a lot of, a lot of beautiful hymns are from the apocalypse, like for all the saints and so on. But it's, uh, Oh God Beyond All Praising is my favorite hymn. Beautiful music by Holst from Jupiter. And the actually the secular words are very good too. I vow to leave my country. They're very profound words. But uh, it, it says and near the end, is a wonderful thing that whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. I can see why his um, one of his old confreres, Father Dennis Noon, said the greatest quality of uh, his eminence is his humility. Well, that certainly came through in that podcast, did it not, Robert? Well, no, as we were talking about, as we were finishing up, our, our, our lengthy, our two-hour conversation, we've never sat that long with a guest. Before. We've never done that. But the fact that we were kind of anxious, I guess is the best way to you know, be sitting down with a cardinal, sitting down with royalty, a prince of the mm -hmm. church. Prince of the church. And yet his eminence, Cardinal Collins, just made it so easy. So easy. Yeah. Like he, like he was talking with his own buddies, which is Humble hard to and, and smart as a whip, still smart as a whip, you can tell. Very cerebral. What did Father Corrigan say? His professor is the smartest guy who came through in 46 years. That's kind of reminds me of myself when I did my Degree at the seminary is very something similar to that. I think the smartest guy out of Ajax married with three kids of Irish extraction to ever come through the lay program. I'm glad you narrowed years. the parameters down. I got to narrow those parameters. As far as you <laughs> Not did. exactly the uh, ringing endorsement of uh, his eminence, hey, Robert? Yeah, yeah. but, but a, a great first half of the conversation, mm -hmm. like I was just saying, that's the, the longest we've sat down with a, a guest. And... You know, thanks to his eminence, when we got to the halfway point, we kind of stopped and asked him if he was okay to keep talking. Right. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's go. We will keep talking about this. Because we were and just starting into his bishopric, and we were like, we're almost at the hour point we're, here. We're, we're not going to get, we won't do here. justice with five minutes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll leave this as the first half here with his vocation story and the story of his priesthood and his studies. We're going to leave mm -hmm. that here. And then in a few weeks time, we'll drop the other half of his story as Archbishop of Toronto. Uh, the part I was most excited and about and most fascinated about. Oh, 
You got to talk about that, Romero. All right, we'll we'll just drop a you know a, a little teaser here for you have to come back for part two when His Eminence talks about what it was like to be part of a conclave to taking us through a conclave. Like How many podcasters just, out there can take you through a conclave with someone who's been inside okay, without right. giving anything away? Of course, the His Eminence would never give any votes away or anything like that. No, well, I think he said it was neck and neck between himself and Cardinal Imbroglio. Didn't he say that? I heard it was <laughs> neck and neck between Cardinal Bergoglio and the Irish extraction married with three kids in South <laughs> Ajax guy that went through the seminary for a lay degree, degree. in something. That's right. Yeah. That was kind of cool. He didn't give away the votes, but he just said it was kind of cool the way the votes were tallying and everything. So he goes through all of that. So stay tuned. Stay stay tuned. And we're just going to leave it like that for the end of this episode. So if you're looking for our usual ending to the episode, not going to happen this time. Not going to happen. But did you see the head of hair on his eminence? He's got more hair than I do. He's got more hair than the two of us combined. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, good point. Okay. So until next time, buddy. Take care.